Okay, so we're going to keep, uh, I'm going to keep going um, a little further, uh, talking about the gospel, about justification a little bit, not as much as last time. Um, there was an article in the last week or so that I read this man wrote and the subtitle of the article is are you a Jefferson or a Hamilton it says I once read that the political differences between Thomas Jefferson and Alexander Hamilton stemmed from what each of them feared more Jefferson feared tyranny while Hamilton feared disorder I've observed something similar among pastors even those who subscribe to the same confessions of faith some Jefferson-like pastors fear the tyranny of the law, legalism, while other Hamilton-like pastors fear the disorder of lawlessness. Antinomianism, that's a word that describes that, a big word. Uh, and I didn't know how to describe antinomianism, but this another person had this quote about it. It's convictionless Christianity. Antinomianism sees repentance as a single event, not to be repeated. Walk the aisle and then just wait for heaven. Sermons are no longer to expose our sins, allowing us to admit our faults and confess them freely. The Christian life is more about ignoring sin and resting on a foggy concept of grace. So, the guy here is describing Two, uh, two realities. The one who's scared of legalism happening and the other one's scared of sin's no big deal. And out of those two fears, he finds that sometimes we preach or sometimes I've found myself parenting out of fears that I have that have maybe come from my growing up and I don't want the same for my children, so I react. I think I over not I think, I overreact sometimes out of that fear. He gives an example of this. Uh, he says, those who see legalism as the greater danger tend to, stress just, tend to stress justification, while those more alert to antinomianism tend to stress sanctification. I recently had a conversation with a Jefferson-type pastor about Matthew 5.20. I maintain that when Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. He's referring to the practical imparted righteousness of sanctification. But my friend was uneasy about this. He said, how could any righteousness be required to enter the kingdom beyond the righteousness of Christ himself? So from Matthew 5.20, the one man says, he's talking about sanctification, he's talking about you're, you're born again, and after you're born again, with the help of the Holy Spirit, you're convicted and you grow and you become more Christ-like, you're being conformed into his image and likeness. That's what it's talking about in Matthew 5.20. And his friend said, I'm a little concerned about that. How could you have any more righteousness than the imputed righteousness of Christ that happens at justification where God not only declares us not guilty but he also clothes us with the righteousness of Christ so I think a person could be on either side of that and vigorously go back and forth and I share that to say that I hope I know along with you that there's a balance in our fellowship and in each of our lives where God gives us an understanding um, because I don't think that both of these men are wrong and I don't think both of them are totally right that there's uh, the truth that's written in the Bible that contains a bit of each of their, their sides so to speak because we can be talking about justification and one of the dangers is that we don't value sanctification or glorification those three things that happen in each one of our lives as a Christian 
justified, sanctified, finally glorified, where we're just like Jesus. And each one of them are important in the Christian life. Um, so, this quote, I want to see if you agree with it. David Pawson said it. He said, God loves righteousness more than he loves people. He said, God loves righteousness more than he loves people. Do you agree with that statement? And if you agree or disagree, you're right now thinking inside why. Like, he backed that statement up with, uh, he said, the whole Bible. That God loves righteousness more than he loves people. And I hope that we see through what I'm going to share today. That's a good thing. It's a good thing. I believe it. I think there's truth in it. I, I don't want to diminish how much God loves us. But if he didn't love righteousness more than he loved people, then he'd be, he'd overlook stuff. Because he loves a person so much that he would overlook some unrighteousness or some sin and he wouldn't be who he says he is the whole reason for Jesus coming and dying for us and, and taking our sin upon him is because God loves righteousness he loves it and because he loves it so much he sent his son in the perfect way to save us um do you think it's bad to fear God? I know we know the right answer to that. Is it more important that we fear God or we know that God loves us? Or are they the same? In Isaiah 11:3, talking of Jesus, it says, He will delight in the fear of the Lord. So, part of what I want to share today is to talk about fear and worry and how those sins are just what they are sin and how God wants us to be free from fear and worry we think about fearing the Lord um, we know what it's like to fear other things to fear cancer to fear death to fear failure to fear something bad happening but God wants to set us free from those fears and have us walk in the fear of the Lord. It says of Jesus again, he'll delight in the fear of the Lord. In John 17, 25, Jesus is praying to the Father and this is how he prays. He says, uh, thinking of righteousness, O righteous Father. And in John 17, 11, he's, same prayer, he says, Holy Father. He's praying to his Father, Holy Father. And then later, as he continues to pray, he says, Righteous Father. It's significant that Jesus uses those words to describe his Father in heaven, uh, which supports that statement, uh, God loving righteousness more than he loves people. We're going to read at the, at the end, of when I'm done here, of the, the two men walking on the road to Emmaus. That's at the end of Luke. You could turn there if you'd like. End of Luke. Luke chapter 24. This is when Jesus had risen. They're going to the uh, place where he was buried. And they find that he's not there anymore. But there was someone there. There were, some, there were angels there. And they said to them, they were looking for him. And verse 6, it says, He's not here, but he's risen. Remember how he spoke to you. And that's a phrase that's been going through my mind the last few weeks to share is, Remember how he spoke to you. The angels saw them there looking for him. They said, He's risen. Remember what he spoke to you. And then these two men walking down the road to Emmaus, they're discouraged and sad. And Jesus says the same thing basically to them. Remember what he spoke to you. 
Turn back to Luke 12, a little bit back there in your Bible, Luke 12. Luke 12, speaking of fear and worry. In the meantime, when so many thousands of people, verse 1, had gathered together and they were trampling one another, and he began to say to his disciples first, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you've said in the dark shall be heard in the light. And whatever you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. Kids and us, think of that. Jesus said there what Isaiah had also written, that men would turn the lights off and go into a room and think they would be so deceived to think that God can't see me. He can't hear He can't hear, and he can't see and I'm getting away with something. And Jesus, even more, even more specific here, says, everything that we say will be proclaimed. Everything that we whispered in private rooms will be proclaimed on housetops. Then in verse 4, he says, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has the authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five... <laughs> so you stop there and think of that. Jesus is saying to his friends, don't fear men who can kill you, and that's all they can do. But fear the one who can kill you and throw you into hell. Saying that to his friends. And then look at the next verses. He says, Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Think of all the birds that have been sold. We have turkeys and chickens at ashes all the time in the freezer. Think how many have been sold. God knows every single one. Every sacrifice that was brought there to bring to God, the birds that were sold, he's saying, there's not one that my father doesn't know. He's saying, fear him. He's righteous. He's holy. But also remember, there's not one bird that he doesn't remember. He says, verse 7, why even the hairs on your head are all numbered. Fear not, you who are more valuable than many sparrows. So he tells us what to fear. Fear my, fear God. And then he says, but don't be afraid of anything. When this God who has the power to do that is our Father, then we should fear him. He's righteous, he's holy, he's good, he's loving. But we should also be able to walk through the world without Jesus said there in that context. Don't be afraid of anything. You have this dad. You have this father. Don't be afraid of anything. Don't be afraid of any man. In Psalm 50 verse 11 and 12 it says, I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. I know all the birds of the hills. And all that moves in the field is mine. I ask my kids, I'll ask you kids, do you believe that? Do you believe that God knows every bird in the field? Every cow, every horse, every mouse in the field, God knows. And all that moves in the field is mine. He says, uh, going on in Luke 12, And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me, uh, acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man also will acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and authorities, 
Do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. We are encouraged in our faith is strengthened when we, when we remember what he has told us. We can think about what it would be like to be thrown in prison or be killed for our faith. Or Jesus said, don't worry, at that moment the Holy Spirit will give you exactly what you need. What you need. Aren't there sparrows sold in the market? And I know he knows every one. Isn't every hair on your head numbered and he knows every single one of them? If, you, if we find ourselves in that situation, may God give us the strong enough faith to believe. Remember what he's written. The Holy Spirit will give us. God is faithful. Lamentations 3.22-23 through 23 says, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. God is faithful. And remember how he spoke to you. In Romans chapter 1, we'll turn to Romans. Speaking of the gospel, I want to... Uh, also, I hope that God helps us to kind of... Let's say we're sitting on top of a mountain and looking out and looking at the gospel. That there's a there's a dark side uh, associated with the gospel, and then there's the glorious side. One side is without Christ, and one side is with Christ. One side is salvation, and the other side is hell. And we can look out and see that, and as we look and get a glimpse of the darker side, not the darker, the darkest of hell, then the gospel is brighter and there's thankfulness that swells up in our heart for all that Jesus has done for us. In Romans 1, 16 and 17, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, what is it? The gospel. In the gospel is what? The righteousness of God. It's revealed from faith to faith as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. From faith to faith means a couple different things that I looked at. It was faith alone. The one who by faith is righteous shall live. The one who by faith is righteous shall live. And is righteousness or is faith something we work up? Something that we can I gotta believe, I gotta believe. It's not. It's the connector to Jesus. The one who's righteous in this way, it says, will live. So we're not feeling weighed down by a burden that my faith has to be stronger. It's a connector with Jesus, who is our righteousness. That it's by faith I'm righteous. And this righteousness makes me right before God. The righteousness of Christ. And that's what that was interesting to me. I long time I sat there. It's talking about the gospel there. It says, for in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. What does that mean? We talked last time I shared that in that in later in Romans, uh, in these first few chapters, it says that our mouth must be shut. We must come to the reality in our life where our mouth is really shut, meaning I have nothing to say before God. My heart is thankful for what he's done for me and to Jesus. My mouth is totally shut. I've tried or I've done this or I've done that, but I've come to the place where my mouth is closed. It's shut. I have nothing more to say. To contrast that, Psalm 73, we have a, a man there who was not righteous, and he's described in this psalm, along with Asaph, who was jealous of him. And you see how it describes that man in Psalm 73, that in verse 9 it says his tongue parades throughout the earth. Can you picture that? I think that's a 
easy, kind of an easy thing to picture a person's tongue parading throughout the earth and how we might fall into the same sin where my tongue is parading throughout the earth, talking, talking, talking. And Asaph looked at him and was jealous. He said, there's no pain in his death. There's no trouble in his life. His tongue's parading throughout the earth. Back in Romans 1, we read of people whose tongues are still taught. Their mouths haven't been shut. It says, and although they know the ordinance of God and those that practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but they give hearty approval to those who practice them. How do they give hearty approval? They do it with their tongues. They're talking, they're giving hearty approval to those evil things, even though they know the ordinance of God. Later in Romans, it says, let God be found true, though every man be found a liar. Both Jews and Greeks all are under sin. There's none righteous, not one. Their throat is an open grave. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Their throat is an open grave. And when I read that and thought about, I thought of Seth's grave. And I remember just standing there looking at that open grave and thinking, this is terrible. I don't know the words to describe, but you just look at an open grave. And that's God's description of a person without Christ. No matter how good, tongue parading throughout the earth, no difficulty, nothing on the, in the world's eyes looks fine. But God's description of that person is what's inside and what comes out of their mouth is like an open grave. Hopeless. And he ends there, there's no fear of God before their eyes. So the fear of God and the law of God or God's word are what shuts a man's mouth. I'm going to read a little bit from Pilgrim's Progress. That's what shut Christian's mouth. In the very beginning of Pilgrim's Progress, he's reading this book, the Bible, that he has, and his mouth is shut, and he's trembling with fear. In, uh, there's a book called Knowing God. I think I shared it last time I or showed you. J.I. Packer writes, God is good to those who trust in him. So he is terrible to those who do not. God is good to those who trust in him and he's terrible to those who are not, who don't trust in him. And this is from, this is from uh, Pilgrim's Progress. I dreamed and behold, I saw a man clothed with rags, standing in a certain place, with his face from his own house, a book in his hand, and a great burden upon his back. I looked and saw him open the book and read therein, and as he read, he wept and trembled, and not being able longer to contain it, he brake out with a lamentable cry, saying, What shall I do? Oh, my dear wife, said he, I'm certain informed that this our city will be burnt with fire from heaven, in which fearful overthrow both myself with thee, my wife, and you, my sweet babes, shall miserably come to ruin, except the which I see not. Some way of escape can be found, whereby we may be delivered. Now I saw upon a time when he was walking in the fields, that he was as he was wont reading his book and greatly distressed in his mind. And as he read, he burst out as he had done before, crying, What shall I do to be saved? Then said the evangelist, Is this thy condition? Why standest thou still? The pilgrim answered, Because I know not where to go. Then he gave him a parchment roll, and there was written within, Flee from the wrath to come. Flee from the wrath to come. Think about Jesus' great struggle in the Garden of Gethsemane. That he was the strongest man. You think about being strong. Jesus was the strongest man who ever lived. He had the strongest faith. He had a perfect, he was perfect. As, as a man walking on the earth, he was so strong, he was so perfect. Think of his struggle. 
Why was he struggling? Why were there great drops of sweat like blood on his head? Why was he begging that if there was another way that, let me take that way, Father? And then we have martyrs, right, that we've read about that go singing to to their death. Why? Jesus wasn't singing to his death. He wasn't. Why was there such a struggle? And not upon a weak person struggling, right? Upon the perfect son of God. Why was there such a struggle? It shows us what it was like, what he knew to come under the wrath of God. To have the wrath of God. We... I don't know if you can if we can even imagine what he saw of the reality what it was going to be like for him and because of that we see such a struggle for him who was perfect and who was stronger than anyone because God's word says that the wrath of God abides upon that by our own nature each one of us when we're born the wrath of God abides on us it's a frightful thing. It brings into our hearts the fear of God, which is a good thing if it's healthy. Uh, amazing to see Jesus struggling. Um, there was a, you've heard of the martyr Polycarp. The Roman soldier was trying to put some pressure on him, told him he was going to be uh, killed for his beliefs. Polycarp said, you threaten with fire which burns for an hour and soon is quenched. For you are ignorant of the fire of the coming judgment and eternal punishment reserved for the wicked. We think about and meditate just here briefly on that wrath that was such a struggle for Jesus uh, that he tasted on Calvary the wrath of God, which was our due. And David Posnes wrote, The fear of God produces reverence in worship, gratitude, being thankful. It's common uh, to thank the Lord for our blessings, right along with unbelievers. He writes, you think about how we pray and thank God for the blessings in our life, which is good. But unbelievers will thank God, too, for the blessings in their life. He says, but the deepest note of gratitude comes when we recall what would have been our inevitable destination had Jesus not been willing to experience hell on the cross for us. See how that's much deeper within a person's heart when a person sees that. That if it wasn't for what Jesus did in experiencing hell on the cross, that would be my inevitable destination. So there's a thankfulness in our heart. Thank you. Let's turn to Psalm or Isaiah 53. When we, whatever we do on Christmas. May God give us all an increase of gratitude and thankfulness for Jesus. Isaiah 53. Who has believed our message? That's such an important word. That's, that's, Jesus is going to echo these words to the men who are walking on the road to Emmaus. Who has believed our message? Who has believed it? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him 
was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Phil talked last week about peace. Without this reality, without Christ, there's no peace. A false peace, or <laughs> but there's no real peace. Because of the chastisement that was on Jesus, then we have peace. Only because of that. No other reason. He was crushed for our iniquities. I... <sighs> Have you ever struggled with that verse where it says, I don't know, maybe <laughs> where he was, it pleased, it. yeah, verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord or it pleased the Lord to crush him. All we like sheep have gone astray, verse 6. We've turned every one of us to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. It's You know, in this we get a description a little bit of the confusion that was there in the people seeing Jesus being crucified. And it's kind of an interesting side note that I didn't know that, uh, you know, it's written in the Old Testament that the... the Anyone hung on a tree is cursed or considered cursed by God. And that's exactly what happened to Jesus. So the Jews saw it as a, like a disgusting... Uh, you were cursed by God if that happened to you. They didn't see it. They just looked at him and despised him and esteemed him stricken by God. He's cursed. He's a cursed man. He's hanging on a tree. God had said that in the Old Testament that any man hung on a tree is cursed. And so they looked at him in that way with a disdain and a distaste and they esteemed him not and uh, counted him as uh, like forsaken of which he was they didn't see it yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him some of my understanding of that verse is has to do with the righteousness of God it was the will of God it pleased God in a way that I don't really understand, but I see it was the righteousness of God. Jesus had to be crushed. It was the only way for you and me. The one person who was perfect, the one who, the perfect blood, the perfect sacrifice, it pleased God and it was God's will to crush him so that sin would be paid for. The only way. He's put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. Think of that. By his knowledge shall the righteous one. So standing around the cross were many people who were confused and didn't understand what was going on. But look what it says there. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. That's the knowledge of God. That's the wisdom of God that no one could see. God knew the perfect plan. He knew the perf It was perfect, but in his knowledge... And see, with, we, some people try, many people try without the gospel to be right with God. But it, the, that kind of wisdom is foolishness to God. Way back in the beginning, he knew, by his knowledge shall the righteous one, that's Jesus, make many accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Now the, pe the two guys on the road to Emmaus, they're talking back and forth, and Jesus is asking them, what are you, t what are you guys talking about? And part of their conversation with him is they say, but we had hoped that he would redeem Israel. They, <laughs> we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. 
Isaiah 33. This is a really good verse. Isaiah 33, verses uh, 5 and 6. The Lord is exalted, for he dwells on high. He has filled Zion with justice and righteousness. There's the word again that we're talking about, righteousness. That God has filled Zion with justice and righteousness. And he will be the stability of your times. The beginning we talked about fear and worry and how that's in our life, that it's sin. And this verse here says that he will be the stability of your times. What has brought you through the last year? What's been the stability of your life? Jesus. The Word of God. He says there, He promises in Isaiah, the Lord is exalted, for He dwells on high above everything. He knows every sparrow. He knows every little animal in the field. He'll fill Zion with justice and righteousness, and He will be the stability of your times, the abundance of salvation, wisdom, and knowledge. The fear of the Lord is Zion's treasure. In the NASB, it says, The fear of the Lord is His treasure. I've asked the kids before, you think about, you have a treasure. You're going to get some treasures on Tuesday, probably. Little things, toys, things that you treasure. Here it says, the fear of the Lord is Zion's treasure. Think about something so precious. It's accounted as a treasure to us. Which is what? The fear of the Lord is like a treasure to God's people. The fear, the, the reverence for God, the respect, the fear of the Lord is like a treasure. Jesus was said, my friends, don't fear man, but fear the one who has the power to kill you and throw you into hell. Fear him. And here, that's a treasure. That type of attitude, healthy fear of the Lord is like a treasure. I heard a preacher say if Adam and Eve would have feared God more, they wouldn't have sinned. This peace and this trying to, not try, uh, ways that we can try to get ourselves on the right side of the gospel. Phil recommended a book a few weeks ago. It's called Everlasting Righteousness. And two ways that we can try to find this peace. One is by being very religious, it says. If you're religious, this man or woman or child, they might be on their knees from morning to night and may make long fastings and vigils. They may prosecute their devotional performances till the body and soul are worn out. It's an older book, right? You can tell. <laughs> Prosecuting their devotional performances. Anyways, they're giving their all. They're trying so hard. It says, but he takes his own way of getting it, not God's. This person is trying to get it their own way, not God's way. That's the foolishness of man. You're trying to get it in your own way. What shall we say then? The Bible says that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith. But Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at the law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone, just as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. By faith. And we remember from James, faith without works is dead, but it is by faith and faith only. The second type of way we're trying to get that peace, I mentioned Psalm 73, that man there, he's arrogant, he's self-assured, he's prosperous. He has no pains in death and he's got no trouble in life. 
And in Psalm 73, it describes him, therefore pride is their necklace and their tongue parades through the earth. This person that has no trouble, no pain, no difficulty, pride, can you picture that? Their necklace, what they wear around is pride. They're happy about their life. There's no problem. And all pride becomes their necklace. Their tongue parades throughout the earth. And in those ways, we can be thankful. We can, we can have pain in our life, but we can be thankful to God for the difficulties. Because it keeps, in a way, pride from becoming our necklace. We, we see our struggle. See our need for the Lord. He's good in allowing that in our life. Keeps us from the fate of the, the other person there described in Psalm 73. In Psalm 73 it says, uh, Surely God set them in slippery places. He cast them down to destruction. How, are they, de- how they are destroyed in a moment. Um... So it says, a man or woman or child without Jesus is dead in their trespasses and sins in which they walk according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. In Ephesians, it says this of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience among them. We, too, all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh of the mind and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest that's what I mentioned before, by nature, children of wrath. That, that every person is born with nature, the children of wrath. But it says there, but God. But God did something. Ephesians 2.13 says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. Back in Pilgrim's Progress, it says, Now I saw in my dream that the highway, up the, the highway up which Christian was to go was fenced on either side with a wall, and that wall is called salvation. Up this way, therefore, did burdened Christian run, not without great difficulty, because of the load on his back. He ran thus till he came at a place somewhat ascending, and upon that place stood a cross. And a little below in the bottom, a sepulchre. Sepulchre is a, means to bury a tomb or a burial chamber, a grave. So I saw in my dream that just as Christian came up with the cross, came up with the cross, his burden loosed off his shoulders and fell from off his back and began to rumble and so continued to do till it came to the mouth of the sepulchre where it fell in and I saw it no more. Then was Christian glad and lightsome and said with a merry heart, He hath given me rest by his sorrow and life by his death. Then he stood still a little while to look and wonder, for it was very surprising to him that the sight of the cross should ease him of his burden. We should ask ourselves, have we had that experience that Christian had? Where he was glad and lightsome and said with a merry heart, he had given me rest by his sorrow and life by his death. He stood still a while and looked and wondered, for it was very surprising to him that the sight of the cross should ease him of his burden. He's standing there with his mouth closed. There's nothing he can say. But he realizes God has done something. This burden's fallen off my back. It's nothing I did. It's it's looking at the cross that took this burden from off my back. He looked, therefore, and looked again, even till the springs that were in his head sent waters down his cheeks. Now as he stood looking and weeping, behold, three shining ones came to him and saluted him with peace be to thee. So the first said to him, thy sins be forgiven. 
The second stripped him of his rags and clothed him with a change of raiment. And the third also set a mark on his forehead and gave him a roll with a seal upon it, which he told him to look on as he ran, and that he should give it at the celestial gate. That little phrase there, which he bed him or told him to look on, told him to look at what? The scroll. As he did what? As he ran. As you're running, take it out and look at it. And it'll give you strength. It'll give you encouragement. But keep running. Keep running. David Pawson says, Faith is exercised in and demonstrated by faithfulness. The just shall live by keeping faith. This is not salvation by works, but salvation by continual faith. A faith that works through love, Galatians 5, 6. But love for the Lord and uh, love for the both love for the Lord and love for others. Jesus made keeping the keeping of his commandments the authentic authentication of love. Turn to John 14. John 14 in verse 23. Jesus answered and said to him, it said, the question was, Lord, what then has happened that you are going to disclose yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered and said to him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we'll come to him and make our abode with, with him. I looked at that word where it says, he will keep my word. It doesn't mean obey, even though we should obey. I'm not, I don't want to say that to take away the importance of obedience. But one thing I see Jesus saying there is this is the reality in the Christian's life. Zion's treasure is what? The fear of the Lord, it said. Is that a treasure to us? Is that a treasure to me, the fear of the Lord? Is that a treasure, something that I treasure inside my heart the fear of the Lord and that I'm asking God for in my life. And here he says, if anyone loves me, do you wonder, do you want to love Jesus more? Yes, we all do. He says, if you love me, you'll keep my word. And that word keep means to guard it. Like in my life, do uh, am I guarding his word? Do I have it in my heart and do I guard it? Like... Uh, like a security system guards a house or a security system guards a safe or do I guard God's word? Jesus says, if you love me, not that I don't, I don't see him saying this as if you love me, then you'll do this. Rather, if you love me, a reality in your life is that you'll guard my word. You'll love it. It'll be a strength to you. It'll encourage you. You'll see the value of it. It'll be a treasure. You'll guard it. You'll keep my word close to you if you love me. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In 2 Corinthians 5.21 in the Living Bible it says, For God took the sinless Christ and poured into him our sins. Then, in exchange, he poured God's goodness into us. In J.B. Phillips' translation in Romans 5, 17, it's, uh, 18 and on, it says, We see then that as one act of sin exposed the whole race of men to God's judgment and condemnation, so one act of perfect righteousness presents all men freely acquitted in the sight of God. One man's disobedience placed all men under the threat of condemnation, 
but one man's obedience has the power to present all men righteous before God. One man's obedience has the power to present all men righteous before God. That's a verse in a... Think of sharing that with a, somebody at work who's a non-believer. That's... Uh, one man's obedience has the power to present all men righteous before God. Every sin Jesus paid for. Every single one of every person. Will we reach out by faith is the question. Will our righteousness be by faith? Every co-worker I have that's an unbeliever, Jesus has paid for every one of their sins and wanting them to reach out by faith. Now we find that the law keeps slipping into the picture to point out the vast extent of sin. Yet though sin is shown to be wide and deep, thank God His grace is wider and deeper still. The whole outlook changes. Sin used to be the master of men and in the end handed them over to death. Now grace is the ruling factor with righteousness as its purpose and its end, the bringing of men to eternal life through God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Back to Luke. On the road to Emmaus. Verse 1 says, But on the first day of the week at early dawn, they came to the tomb bringing spices which they had prepared. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men suddenly stood near them in dazzling clothing, and as the women were terrified and bowed down their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living one among the dead? He's not here, but he is risen. Remember how he spoke to you while he was still in Galilee, saying that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and the third day rise again. And verse 8, And they remembered his words, and returned to the tomb and reported all these things uh, to the eleven and all the rest. Now they were Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James. Also the other women with them were telling these things to the apostles. But these words appeared to them as nonsense, and they would not believe them. But Peter got up and ran to the tomb. Stooping in, he saw the linen wrappings only, and he went away to his home, marveling at what had happened. Verse 13. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. I'd heard Martin Lloyd-Jones talking about this section of Scripture. He was talking, what I'm going to share too, is about discouragement. And he said one of the ways that we get it discouraged is talking with each other about all the things that had happened. So we just take a second and think about that. Over the last six months, sitting around talking about all the things that have happened. And sometimes it can be discouraging. Sometimes it's, I'm not saying it's always wrong and not just from the split. I'm talking about other things in our life too where we're talking about something that we've been disappointed at or something with somebody and it has an effect. You'll see in these guys, it has the same effect on us, sitting there talking about things that have happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Verse 17, he said to them, he said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking, what? Sad. Stood still looking sad. They're discouraged. They're feeling hopeless. 
They're talking about all that had happened in the last few days. And they're just standing there still like, how, how can you be asking us that? And looking sad, just standing there looking sad. The question is, how do we, how do we turn that around? What can we do to turn, when we find ourselves in that situation, how do we turn it around? Jesus will show us. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, Are you the only visitor in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. They said, But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Or, in my own life, I could say, I had hoped it would turn out this way. I had hoped that this would happen. I thought it was going to go this way, and I thought this was going to happen. Yes, and besides all this, it's now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and they did not find his body. They came back saying that they, they had even seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not, but him they did not see. So think about that in our life. We can believe uh, that God's real. That doesn't change us. We can, someone could see an angel and come and tell us the truth and it's not going to change us. It didn't change. They, they saw, they heard reports. But they said there, but they did not see him. And Jesus said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. They were foolish and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures and the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going, and Jesus acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went to stay with them. And when he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And he vanished from sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? That's the answer to our discouragement. God's word. God opening us up in our mind to understand. He's, the angel said, Don't you remember what he said? Jesus said, You're foolish. Don't You're slow to believe what... The word says, and in that we find the answer, God's word. Faith connected with God's word, alive, the righteousness that we receive by faith. And we find ourselves encouraged. The Lord is risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Or they went back. So you see at the beginning it said it was seven miles. They went there, ate dinner, and they were so excited did not their hearts burn within us? They hiked back seven miles. At verse 36, as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they had saw a spirit. He said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that is, myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything to eat? They gave him a piece of fish, and he took it and ate it before them. And then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written. And in 
After Jesus had done this for them, in verse 52 it said, They worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. So they started out on the road to Emmaus talking about everything that had happened to them. They stood there looking sad and discouraged. And at the end, verse 52, after we see what Jesus and his word, his living word can do when it burns within our heart, they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. Heavenly Father, I pray that your word would have the same effect on us continually through our life when we find ourselves sad and discouraged or fearful or worrying that we remember what you've spoken and that it would bring life mixed with faith bring life to us and bring a song into our heart a joy into our heart that is our strength that carries us through the days ahead I pray, Father, that your word would be alive, that you'd open our mind to understand your word and that it would be life in us to bring glory to your name. Help us, Father, to understand whether David Pawson's sentence there is true or not. We pray that you would lead us. Your righteousness is more important than people. It's not, the God, it's not your word, Father, but help us to understand how important your righteousness is to you and that the fear of the Lord would be a treasure in our hearts. We would treasure it. We ask that you do this in each heart in Jesus' name. Amen.